0: Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. December, somehow, somehow December has come upon us and we're here. I, I want to apologize to our uh, audience for skipping another episode. It was totally on me. I was traveling for book-related things and just did not get ahead of it in time. So thank you for your, for your, your patience. I know it's been a little bit touch and go schedule-wise this fall, but so...
1: It definitely wasn't all Dave. He keeps apologizing, which is like, so your energy. I'm happy but like, to let
2: Dave take the fall on this okay. one. Okay, I mean, like absolutely. Also, it was Thanksgiving, yeah. which is a
1: national holiday. Did you do that too? If <laughs> well, you did, I you're in, you're in big trouble. at Thanksgiving is your fault, I'm gonna tell you that right now. Okay. Mm.
0: Yeah. Well,
2: uh, R J, you usually to
0: blame yes. for everything. What's going on?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. We're, we're back. It's Advent. You know, we're charging towards Christmas Had a nice Thanksgiving. Um, I was at a town for Thanksgiving, went up to Northern Virginia to see my brother and his family and Jonathan Adams, uh, a, a, a lovely, uh, Mockingbird affiliated friend and his family. So it was, it was a nice Thanksgiving and then came back and just kind of re-entry shock with emails to answer and, you know, money to raise and all that sort of stuff. But we're, we're doing good. We're doing. Mm. It's cooling off a little bit. It's only like in the low eighties here now yeah. in uh, in Florida. Sure. So the winter is upon us. Good <laughs> Lord. We're doing well. How what are you all
0: doing, Sarah? what's What's happening with you? How has the last couple of weeks been?
1: Oh, it's been good. Uh, Melina Smith of Storymakers came in and did a little fundraiser cocktail party thing here a couple weeks ago, which was so fun. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, it was really fun and. You know, we do Advent early with college students, so we had our little... Like, I write a lessons in carol service that we use, so we we actually had the water crisis. Do you write the lessons?
2: Do you write the lessons? Um, Everyone's
0: like, why do we keep talking about the Holocaust? I thought it's Advent. <laughs> <Yes.
2: laughs> <laughs> why are we talking about?
1: i like, Sarah's, oh, in <laughs> Sarah's in charge. Sarah's in charge. Yeah, so with the water Enneagram? crisis, we couldn't actually... We couldn't do it at our, our space because the church camp is closed. So we pivoted and did it. Um, this lovely uh, Wendy Mixon, who is a listener. She and John Dell Mixon uh, offered for us to do it in their home and it was so beautiful, y'all. Cool. Like we oh my gosh. we even sang A which they were like all in for, and it was just it was just beautiful. So a Pitch Perfect that was a, Christmas. I know. It was a really nice, I can tell that their parents invested some money in like musical training, you know, even for the engineering majors. So it was like really beautiful. And then today I am taking like one massive deep breath after another because I'm decorating for Christmas. And I know we all like to use the word triggering, but I was literally staring at the Christmas tree when my sister-in-law called to tell me my parents had died in a car accident. So Christmas decorations are like a landmine for me. So wow. today I've just been trying to kind of slowly find my way into that. Um, mm. one is, thing any, I, is anything I, up, yet? What, what, huh? up yet? What's up well, What's up on the... Well, the thing I did do this year, I, I kind of suffered with the same tree last year because we don't have a real tree. Like, I don't have time for that. Um, and so we... we <laughs> I know there's judgment, but judge well. me all you want. I don't. <laughs> um, I'll remain so we silent. Bought we bought another fake tree because you know the environment's on fire anyway. Uh, but this year, it's uh, my husband is a saint. I didn't even ask him. It's rose gold metallic.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: Um, wow. And that sounds has, like really helped. So yeah, I'll send y'all a picture. But that's been you know just trying to make my way through Christmas stuff.
0: My old, just for what it's worth, my older brother has always had like a like a white metallic tree you know something that's so overtly fake that it just looks cool you know it looks uh, like yes. okay, it, it, it. it takes you out of the i mean it doesn't take you out of the spirit it's just a it's just a different vibe you're like it's oh a i'm a different vibe i'm in a that kind of disco house. christmas <laughs> yeah
1: you're in a <laughs> disco christmas house that's disco sort of, christmas yeah, yeah. that's it dave how are you how was oh. thanksgiving
0: well How's we decided to push going? Uh, you've been uh, just everywhere yeah i mean i'm, I'm a little you know I'm wiped. I'm from yeah. from the book stuff. Mm, I I, bet. I've, you must it's be. been very um, you know rewarding in a lot of ways, and I've loved meeting people, especially that listen to this podcast. And again, lots of tears uh, out there uh, for people talking to me about the Mockingcast, which is just such a privilege. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a lot of coming and going, and uh, I've got a couple of things to do in December, but not much. And um, so we decided to bail on our on our Thanksgiving plans, and really take it easy and do just stuff locally. Um, I mean, here in here in Mockingbird HQ, we've just sent out our big annual appeal for fundraising, and um, that's always a, a big push, a huge push, because I like to I like to handwrite all the envelopes. Um, not me personally, but our crew. <laughs> to be so, clear. So, if you're
1: out there and you're listening... You do one, just look like a really good leader, and you're like, okay, guys, here you go. No, shout
0: out to Deanna Roche, who's just unbelievable. <laughs> She's our administrator and sort of delegates all this stuff, and she does it great. But That's we are awesome. we are in the middle of uh, raising money for Mockingbird. Uh, please, if you're a listener and you, you get something out of this, and you also find Mockingbird to be a source of sustenance for you consider supporting us or don't just consider it do it uh i'll put the link in the show notes um we could really use your help we got a lot of money to raise for next year because we have so much planned um uh any, anything you guys want to say about that you you both had to do pledge campaigns recently or not you sarah sorry i was like i you've, don't you've but... had to witness one
1: <laughs> um yeah. yeah i mean give I to mean, things people... you care about yeah, I meet yeah, people all the time yeah. who are impacted by this podcast. And I'm really grateful for that because I, I do. I mean, I say this a lot, but I do feel like I'm just talking to two friends. Um, but if it's, you know, if it's a thing that has become a, a regular fixture in our life, even a little bit of cash in our way would, would be a huge help. So, yeah.
0: If you sign up to Give Monthly, you do get a... Um subscription to the magazine we're going to talk about the magazine a little bit today our most recent uh issue about sleep which is incredible but that's just an incentive i think i think aaron uh, zimmerman for giving tuesday i mean it's such a it's such a dodgy proposition giving tuesday in my from where i'm standing it just feels kind of cynical uh or contrived shall we say but um everyone in nonprofit world sort of feels corralled into it, you know, like, like if you don't, then people will think you don't need money and everyone in nonprofit world always needs money. And so, but Aaron Zimmerman decided to, uh, and Todd Brewer decided to put together a video that sort of was spoofing the Sarah McLaughlin, you know, Give to the dogs, sort of thing. It's like there's thousands of of guilty sinners out there in need of a good word, hearing terrible news all day long. It's very funny, and it's on our social media. I think people should check it out. Aaron promised people that they'd get a um, a signed picture of me if they if they <laughs> if they gave a hundred dollars, and that I'd I'd put a heart on the eye, um, which is not going to happen. But um, oh, well. Well, maybe, okay, you know, if if people really want
2: that. What I'm giving gonna... level do people I mean, have to I be to get I mean, I saw it, and I was like, eye. he better do yes, that. Yes, so. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Aaron did not yeah. consult me when he did that.
1: Well, looks like you've got a I lot of you, friend. I just watched
2: Pepsi Where's My Jet, so it can't be, you know, mocking cast, where's my eye with a heart dot on it. Have you guys watched that Netflix oh, yeah, Pepsi Where's, the where's the My movie? Jet? Yeah. All, you gotta Be careful about what you advertise, you know, you want to be true.
0: Pepsi promised to give away a fighter jet in the 80s, like, right, or in yes. the 90s?
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, they had an advertisement what? where they said they said they would give you a fighter jet for a certain amount of Pepsi points, and there was no disclaimers or anything. So this guy took it seriously and, like, raised the money for the fighter jet and took him to court, but then mm-hmm. n- never got the fighter jet. So David's all, don't let this happen to you. You oh now gosh. need to do the heart dots. I'm just kidding. You can do it every
0: day. All right. Time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, again— Thank you for your support. Good please, job. Uh, please, uh, please that support well. us. If 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 you've <laughs> you know, great. you may not get a fighter jet, you may not even get a picture of me, but you will get tons of amazing free content that continues to uh, flow so generously. Uh, all about uh, the grace of God.
1: Can I say one other thing? Um, I've been so surprised, not, well, I I haven't been so surprised, but it has been intriguing to me how much my college students have enjoyed the magazine to the point that I will order extra copies just to have sitting in our space. So -hmm. if you're someone who already gets the magazine and you have kids that are in college, young adult kids you know, you could share your subscription with them. Like if you, you know, if you give now and you want another, I mean, that's just a thought, but absolutely. I'm surprised by how many people in my life who maybe struggle with their relationship with church, don't attend church at all, are faithful members of a church. Like it's crazy how that broad the appeal is of the magazine. Mm. So, yeah.
0: Well, that's, that's great. I mean, and, and we're, we're doing a lot of other things too. So you know, th- that would support the same old song and mm-hmm. the amazing work on our website and the conferences that are... We've got one in Winter Park at the end of January, and then we've been... F- uh, so the theme for the New York conference next year, guys, at the end of April... It's, last year, the theme was one word, uh, uh, hope. This year, it's going to be help. So oh, that's, the, that's, that's, nice. that's the theme. Esau McCauley's going to come speak, and uh, nice. John Olinebaugh and... Uh, Elena Diabala De- 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 from, from Craigslist Confessional. Um, yeah, um, anyway. that Appeal over, but there's a link in the show notes to give, and we're, we're grateful for all the, that are already giving. And so, thank you. So, the question for you guys as we dive into this is, what's your relationship with sleep like? We're going to talk about the sleep issue. How do you, how do you sleep these days? Uh, has that changed? Is sleep... Um, are you a person that's in you know never wants to ever get out of bed or uh insomnia or w- what what do you think about when you think about sleep tell give, how how are you sleeping
1: i'm a really good sleeper so i i and i've kind of always been a really good sleeper um, really
0: are you in a house full of good sleepers
1: yeah everyone's a pretty good sleeper i mean even when mom and dad died and everyone was like oh you're gonna have to go on something i was like i'll take a like i can take like a gram and a half of melatonin and i'm like okay i'm fine like i mean i'm about to hit like we know menopause is coming i just turned 40 so like i don't know how long this streak will last let's be honest because i hear horror stories but um but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Sleep's not 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 your issue. I mean, that's like a Yeah, it's not that's not my issue. I feel like it's RJ's issue. Is it RJ? Are you a good sleeper?
2: Yeah, I would say I'm I'm tired a lot of the time. I I'm not up a lot in the middle of the night. Sometimes I am. I wake up and be up for half an hour, 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're uh your fears, your anxieties can get to you a little bit in the middle of the night. Um, but historically, I've been a good sleeper. I'm still a pretty good sleeper, but not as good as I used to be. I mm. will say that. Interesting. Um, and of course, if you've got small children, you know that the only time you get alone with your spouse is once the kids have gone to bed. Yeah.
0: Well, I, the fact that the two of you... When you are tired, can sleep? I mean, that's uh, I. I'm I'm in that boat too, actually. You know, so of of the forty somethings in America, lots of people can't sleep. That's what I'm told. It's a very it's a huge huge issue, and not just not Christian enough. I guess yeah, they just (laughs) (laughs) not not enough. Yeah, that's the answer.
1: You got to rest in the Lord. I don't know what to say. I'm a napper. (laughs) I'm a napper at
0: this point in my life. I like to have like a 20, 30 minute power nap and then I can keep going.
1: Yes. I felt I visited my brother and sister-in-law in in New Orleans, uh, I guess it was about a month ago. And my brother and I went to Oktoberfest. I mean, we took everybody, but really we were like, we're going to get a beer. We each got an eight ounce beer. I mean, like smallest beer they had. And then... Like, we're both over. asleep on the couch for three hours. You know what Dash I mean?
0: I equate that I with utter it. relaxation is the ability to sort of drift off while watching. I mean, Sarah, you talked about it in terms of watching baseball, but I mean, yes. I like, watch anything. I'll sit there with my kids and I'll just sort of sort of half watch it. And then it's kind of almost like a cliche of the dad who falls asleep during uh, whatever his kids are watching. But that's that's me. And I, I, I think that's a really lovely... So anyway, yeah. well, CJ writes this in his opener to the at magazine, and it's f- such a good opener. He says this. I say, he says, I'd never sign up for it, but I can't say I'm not tempted to. In the ad, famed neuroscientist Matthew Walker vows to, quote, reclaim our right to a full night of sleep. I'm referring to the sleep master class. I guess sleep is now so complicated we need an expert to teach us how. If I seem sarcastic, it's not because I find sleeping easy. I just don't see it as something to master. It seems more like something that masters. No matter how hard we fight to stave it off or bring it on, eventually our eyelids droop and our minds wander off into that dreamy limbo. Of course, it's not a systematic process and rarely complies with our expectations for it. Some nights we may lie awake for hours, anxiously cycling over the most random thoughts. The comedian Samantha Irby describes it like this. Hello, 911? I've been lying awake for an hour each night for the past eight months, reliving a two-second awkward experience I had in the front of a casual acquaintance three years ago. In the Masterclass preview, Walker suggests that you can tame the sleep beast with a few simple tricks, like turning down your bedroom temperature. But the secret weapon of a good night's rest? Sleep tracking. Now, I don't know if you've ever fastidiously monitored your behavior in any way, but it's the kind of the opposite of relaxing. And even the obsessive pursuit of a perfect night's sleep has become so common, there's now a term for it, orthosomnia, people who psych themselves out of being able to sleep, that they sort of, sleep becomes a performance anxiety thing. Historically, this is pretty weird, according to some scholars, uh, getting
1: sort of- I didn't realize sleep was sexy until this very moment, and you have just made it so unsexy. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I don't know what to say. That's what these these (laughs) folks are talking about. That in medieval texts, you would read of two sleeps, you know, segments of slumber Mm -hmm. from three to four hours. We've talked about that before. Um, But, you know, although we can set certain conditions to help us get there, ultimately sleep comes over us. It happens to us. We lay utterly passive while our minds work with no effort of our own. In Walker's terms, sleep provides overnight therapy. Sleep will take difficult, painful experiences, and it will act almost like a nocturnal, soothing balm. For this reason, there may be no more profounder image of faith than the passivity of a good night's rest. I'm reminded of what Moses told the Israelites in Exodus The Lord will fight for you, you need only keep still. In other words, while we lay immobile, God acts. While we sleep, God works. While we appear to be dead, God provides and restores life. Sleep itself is a reenactment of death, and waking up is resurrection. It's a daily necessity that evokes our foundational hope
1: I love that i mean I, I i agree with so much of it i it is i mean I don't know i i i have like now that I think about it, I do have tricks I use to help myself go to sleep mm-hmm. um when I'm having a hard time, but ultimately, the comfort of knowing that like I don't have to think anymore. Yeah. Isn't is enough of a relief that that usually puts me to sleep. Um so and it it is like an it feels like an escape to me. I mean, I understand fully especially um in this stage of my life, season of my life, why depressed people can sleep all the time because it does feel like an escape, right? Mm-hmm. Um
0: reprieve, yeah.
1: Yeah, like a break for sure, but um but it it's a, such a beautiful thing to me. And I I actually think there's nothing sweeter than like the naps parents take when their kids have like a television show on. And, you know, I mean, I just like, I remember once being at Disney with my family when I was a little kid and my mom, we were watching some like performance on stage and the chairs moved a little bit. I mean, there was even like, it was kind of a ride. And I just looked at my mom out asleep, totally asleep, you know, like I just, there's something beautiful about being able to sleep anywhere. Like to me, it says like, you're really comfortable with, you know, with the people you're with. So, Hmm. Yeah, Yeah,
0: it's safe, comfortable. RJ, what do you, what do you, what do you think of what CJ wrote?
2: Well, I was thinking about, I'm not sure if he wrote it or you said it before about uh, how apparently people in their 40s in our country are having a really tough time sleeping. I hadn't heard that before, but that really makes sense to me, you know, because I think if you're in your 40s and if you've done well, you know, in your life, then you're probably in a place in your career where you have um, a certain level of responsibility, like you might be overseeing people. There's a lot of pressure. You you have a, you've experienced enough success, and you're already and you're also deep enough into your career that you're not going to stop doing it and start doing something else, right? You sort of past the point of no return with whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. You're trapped, and so you're you're sort of trapped. That that's exactly right. And you're oftentimes, in. probably the right. more— the more successful you are, the more trapped you are, yeah. right? And the more people are counting on you, whether it's clients, whether it's uh, employees, like whether, whatever it is, you also don't have as much energy as you had in your 20s and 30s. Like you're starting to slow down a little bit. Your metabolism is slowing down. You're starting to see numbers on your scale that you've never seen before, Um and your kids are an age where, like, they really need you. They need you because they they're teenagers, or they need to go to their soccer games, or thinking about college. They need you to pay for college. Your spouse is probably stressed out about your kids as well. So it makes perfect sense to me. You're you're right at this this moment of maximum. Uh, Need from other people, and mm-hmm. and you don't have the energy that you had when you were in your twenties and thirties, and you move into your fifties and sixties. So I'm told, then your kids are out of college, you know the, the financial pressures aren't so much. You can sort of see uh, uh, um, what's it called, uh, maybe retirement on the horizon. You're not trying to sort of build your career anymore. You sort of you're over it, or or so that just that makes sense to me that it's a a uniquely difficult time in people's life. And and Sarah, when you said. It's so nice when I get in bed and I have permission to sort of not think anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I ever feel like I have permission not to think, or or it's like as soon oh. as you let your guard down, mm-hmm. then your mind is flooded with all of these um, things that you forgot to do, or things you have to do tomorrow, or things you mm-hmm. have to get done. You don't have time to do it. Um, I mean, I know certain people, and I'll just say like my my. Wife is one of them, and I used to give her a hard time about it. It's difficult for her to fall asleep if she's not listening to a podcast or watching something on Netflix because that it, it, it drowns out the other voices in her head. Mm. And I and she and I think I think I used to say, hey, that's
1: just so you know. Well,
2: I used to say that's really unhealthy, like that's unhealthy for you to do, Jay. But then she, you know, she talked to her therapist, and therapist like that's fine to do, whatever you need to do to get to sleep
1: to go to sleep. um,
2: But yeah, the the hamster wheel seems never to seems never to stop Mm because it's never done. It's never which is
1: the relief of death, right? And I think that for me, maybe that relationship that CJ alludes to is like so important because you know, in death. I mean, I've, I think this all the time and I have for a long time, like when I'm really overwhelmed, I'll think, well, someday I'll be dead and I won't have to deal with this." <laughs> you know. Right. I mean, there's, there's like a rest to me there. And that's not a, yes. not a suicidal ideation at all. It's just facts. Yeah.
0: yeah. In fact, there's another article in the, we'll get to at the very end, but Todd Brewer talks about how when Paul St. Paul talks about death, of believers, he almost always talks about those who are asleep.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. When he he talks about Jesus
0: dying, he talks about perishing. He talks about Mm -hmm. like actual physical ceasing to, you know, death. But when he talks about other people who've died, who are sort of in Christ, he talks about them as having fallen asleep. And then you have Jesus himself being like, she's not dead. She's just asleep, you know? And, and there's this link between the two that is, um, really interesting and you don't think about it because you know when we when we we said we wanted to do an article a whole issue on sleep there were some voices that said that doesn't seem like a very central theme you know like why don't you know you did you just did success and failure sleep seems tangential to human experience when you're like well a third of your life is spent asleep everyone deals more time doing
2: it than anything else You're constantly
0: thinking about it talking about it we're constantly you know you know, uh, saying how tired we are or how we're trying to pep ourselves up. I mean, the, our relationship with sleep is almost so central that we don't even think about it. That's how central it is. You know, it's the, it's right. the water we're swimming in. So I thought right. that was really, really fascinating. Um, and another thing I'll say about sleep is that uh, when we were recording the Brothers all this past um, less last, last year, uh, I noticed my brothers and I when we were trying to talk about Jesus when we were trying to d- do this episode on Jesus all of us had associations with our mother singing yeah. songs about Jesus to us right as we were sleeping. So yeah. it, mm. and, and I think a lot of parents do that almost just to sort of again it's it's like a Netflix show RJ it's right. like sort of some some white noise for kids to sort of rest and but it, if Jesus but is your lullaby it, it did in in each one of us as 40-year-old mid-40-year-old men we're all talking about something about linking Jesus with sleep and lullaby and safety and rest did not it unhooked Christ from or at least it gave a different picture of Jesus as opposed to sort of the taskmaster who's after you to to improve yourself all the time like we always thought no Jesus is like who who welcomes us into sleep every night that's a isn't that it? I thought that was, people really Seriously. resonated that with, with us. Do you guys, I, I used to sing to my kids. It was so funny. I tried to do the same thing. One of the children, one of my boys loved it. And like two of other, my other boys who are generally love church and everything, they hated me singing to them at night. So I was like, all right, that's not happening. We're going gonna, gonna, um, to just read to you or something like that. But any other thoughts on, on that before we move on?
2: My last thought is I, I remember I had a boss in ministry once who was probably in his late fifties early sixties. He had three grown daughters and they were all kind of either in you know in college out of college or they were almost all totally out of college and kind of grown. And he said to me once he said you know RJ there was a day recently within the last five years where I suddenly realized that I'd been tired for like three decades and I wasn't tired anymore. You know, because he sort of had had completed so to some degree completed the task of raising his children, and I'm waiting for that day to come. I'm waiting to wake up and be like, "Oh, I've been tired for thirty years, and I'm not tired anymore, <laughs> but that's but right now I'm just kind of tired all the time, and I think I'm probably not the only one,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, yes. let's move on to a topic we sort of touched on last time, but this article is just too good to pass up. It's Tara Isabella Burton writing in the New York Times about the problem with letting therapy speak invade everything. And you can mm. you can even hear, by the way, in the sleep article, the master class guy talks about sleep as therapy. Mm. Now, here we are, three people who love therapy. am going to talk about the, the, the perils of it again. Um, uh, she writes before before the midterm, Some of us were suffering from election stress disorder. Others have left Twitter as an act of quote boundary setting. Uh, our political lives have become saturated with the language and imagery of therapy. Our personal lives too. The language of trauma and attachment styles has become a common way to understand ourselves and our relationships. The exhortation to take care of ourselves and to protect our mental being at any cost has become a mantra for a newly dominant ideology. Uh, But it's not just that. It's that according to this newly prevalent gospel of self-actualization, the pursuit of private happiness has increasingly become culturally celebrated as the ultimate goal. The authentic self, to use a common buzzword, is characterized by personal desires and individual longings. Feelings have become the authoritative guide to what we ought to do at the expense of our communal obligations." It's easy to be cynical about the proliferation of therapy culture and the attendant self-focus it promotes, but I believe the growing popularity of therapy discourse is less about generational or cultural selfishness than it is about a cultural hunger, the shared need for a framework to talk about the questions foundational to our existence as human beings and a shared sense that the good life relies on more than just our material circumstances. Historically, the project of making sense of our lives was dominated by religion. Our churches, synagogues, and mosques offered answers to life's most wrenching questions. But religious institutions don't have the cachet or public trust that they once did. And for some, the language and worldview of therapy fills that gap. One expert said that therapy helps us find meaning in the chaos of our lives. It helps explain why things are not working and how we may attain salvation. From that perspective, the apparent solipsism of therapy culture may also be its greatest asset. After all, if you don't trust the society around you, your own feelings and perceptions start to look far more reliable than those of anyone else. Yet it is precisely the rejection of our communal lives that makes therapy culture such an imperfect substitute. The idea that we are authentic only insofar as we cut ourselves off from one another and that the truest or most fundamental parts of our humanity can be found in our desires and not our obligations risks cutting us off from the most important truths about being human, which is that we are social animals. And while the call to cut off the toxic or to pursue the mantra to live your best life or you are enough may well serve some of us in individual cases, the normalization of narratives of personal liberation threaten to further weaken our already frayed social bonds. What do you think? Uh, We're back at it with the therapization. My cards on the table is I tend to be more positive about therapy than this article uh, alludes to, and yet I also do see it serving this sort of almost metaphysical purpose where we're dying for a language uh, or a vocabulary to talk about meaning and goodness and, and, and beauty and happiness, and we don't have it, so we've sort of punted to this because a lot of actual therapists will look at some of the, some of that language and say, it's, it gets a little dicey, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, when, when everything becomes a trauma or when everything becomes pathologized, uh, then nothing is right. I don't know. What do you, what do you, what are you guys thinking?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a little, I mean, you know, you sent us the articles, which I'm very grateful for, but I do want to be really clear. Like we're Um, (laughs) pro-therapy. Yes. Because I don't want us to have this conversation and people be like, oh, you know. Um, But we're also really pro-community. Yes. And hopefully that's a community of faith. But, like, you know, I think community is the thing that um, real community, in-person community, not community on the Internet, is crucial. It's crucial. I mean, it's why – babies in orphanages that don't have enough adults to hold them die. Like we're not better than the babies. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I think there's this thought that at some point we, we transition, especially now we think at some point we transition out of needing other people. And I, I don't just mean like we need them to do things for us, but I mean like needing the physical presence of other people. I mean, I, when I'm at church, I often think, especially when I'm at church at my husband's church, where we have people of multiple ages, you know, I know the elderly men in the pews and the elderly women in the pews, but I'm I'm thinking particularly of one gentleman right now who lost his wife last year and who, you know, I don't know if anyone hugs this guy. Mm. And so like Mm. when he tries to hug me, I'm going to hug him, you know, like that is like an act of, of like we're in this Christian community together and like, you know, I, I think, yeah, I know the physical touch and safe church. And I, I understand that gets into murky water, but, um, mm. we're so quick to negate how important that is for us as like functioning adults. I mean, you know, maybe we talked about this last therapeutic thing, but I recently had a mental health professional say to me that hospitalizations of people, like six to 12 or something like ER hospitalization. So suicide attempt would be where that's headed or just totally out of control. Those are up 800% in ERs. Mm. Mm. Like that's staggering. Um, So I, you know, I, I begin to wonder, you know, is it less a, a, a conversation about therapy and like that therapy is taking the place of this because Honestly, therapy may not be that accessible for everyone, or is the bigger problem we're just not around each other as like bodies and people and emotions and whatever. I don't know. I just
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean there's one way to look at this and and, and sort of want to correct everyone and say you just like you also need this or that or the right, other. But right. what I what I liked about her article was that she said instead of just lamenting that that therapy can be self-absorbed. It it, it it plays very, very quickly to our self-absorption. A certain totally f- a certain, and definitely the the therapeutic language that coats everything can everything becomes about my personal journey, and you're all sort of just actors in the play of my life. Um, I think though that what she says is that that the 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 over emphasis perhaps is indicative of it's a cry of, of for help i mean it's 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 the cry of pain it's like we're we we life is, is is full of hardness and, and we, we need something and this is what we're grasping for right now rather than it be like well stop grasping for that you know you want to say you want to look and say this is this is the degree to which people are hurting right
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in college ministry, like I encounter students all the time who are in therapy, who are starting therapy for the first time. And I've never met a college student that I thought like, well, you just want to sit and be self-absorbed. I always think like, oh, you have a great deal of pain you're trying to deal with and how brave of you, you know, um, but also, you know, they're in my community. Right. So they, I mean, they're kind of doing both of these things, which is a lot of work and is amazing when people do it. I want to acknowledge that, but what do you think,
2: Arch? I hadn't thought this before, but it made me wonder whether it's now become true in certain broad swaths of our culture um, that people see, how do I say this? That intimate interpersonal react- relationships with other people are more likely to be a net negative than a net positive. Oh. Like you're 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 so scared of being injured, or exhausted, worn out, taken advantage of that it's almost just not worth it. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's like I'd rather I'd rather yeah. just do my own thing and totally. go to therapy and work yes. on myself and not have the risk. Yeah. Uh, because it's just too risky. I've been too injured in the past. I've gone through this too much. Yeah, and the thing about that is that there's an element of truth to it. Like people, people can be exhausting and people can say insensitive things and people can hurt you, especially when you don't know them very well and you're not willing to give them the benefit of the doubt or they're not willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. But that um, really the only way we make friends is by spending enough time with someone and getting past that. You know, sometimes you just meet someone that you automatically click with. Sometimes you just have that experience, and that's a miracle when it does, and praise God for that. But a lot of the times, friendship is just a function of how much time you spend with somebody. You know, I'm speaking as one who's made a lot of friends with parents of my children's friends that I became friends with just because I spent so much time with them. Right. And maybe when I first met them, I was like, do I really like this person? They probably thought the same thing of me. And then I spend more time with them, get to know them better. I'm like, yeah, I do like this person. But that takes a little while. And so I think the hope is that maybe th- through therapy you become a little bit more patient. You come to terms with the fact that you're kind of an impossible person also, um, and it somehow leads you to the courage and and the, the the wherewithal to to take the risk of intimacy and to spend enough time with other people where you actually build those relationships, where it's sort of mm. becomes self-perpetuating. Mm. Um, but that is just a sad thought, and I think it's true that for a lot of people intimacy is a risk not worth taking because they're they're convinced it's going to be more harmful than helpful.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so many accounts that I'll see on social media of, of young women specifically who will be like, these are all my qualifiers for a husband, right? I mean, really popular accounts. And sometimes they're funny, but a lot of times they're pretty serious. Like, well, if... You know he's not willing to. I mean, I'm not even gonna know the details of it. It's basically like if he's not willing to be godlike, <laughs> then <laughs> then he's not for you. And I'm just like, well, I'm no blooming rose. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, I what? Like, where where did we where did we begin to think that somehow we were bringing our best to the table. I mean, I always bring my worst to the table. Yeah. You know? Like, I always bring my I mean, I I hosted a baby shower over Thanksgiving break. And I to just just bear with me here, but I had to go to a baby funeral on Friday. Oof. And then I had to host a baby shower on Sunday. So I was um not in a good headspace. And, um, but I, but I, I did it. I love the, the woman I, you know, I I hosted it for, but one of her friends was helping me, not a woman I knew well, I should not have said this to her. And she said to me, um, oh, you did such a good job. Thank you for doing so much, which I hadn't. And I said, oh, I'm just a broken person and I don't care very much. Mm. (laughs) That came right out of my mouth at a baby shower in front of people. Like I don't bring my best. And RJ, I think the way that you talk about therapy here, like, it should actually rub, bump into these parts of ourselves, right, that we have to work on. It shouldn't isolate us more. And I think if you're in therapy and you're feeling like it's isolating you more, you know, I don't know. I think you probably need a new therapist.
0: Yeah, that's my number one critique of this is that it's, it's, it's not consonant- it's not, with with my actual experience of therapy, which is to draw no. me out of myself, is the fact is I'm yes. too drawn into yeah. myself. And a good therapist, and I I, I I'm speaking as someone who had therapy two hours ago. You know, like that, I was able to get out of my head and start thinking about other people and all of these things. And I I I loved it. I think it's um, and it was it was profoundly helpful. Now it is not church, and it is not the there. You know, I don't think that. I basically think people can probably go to therapy forever. I don't think it's like a, uh, necessarily like a beginning, middle, and end uh, mm-hmm. to it. Um, but what, what part of what I hear you guys saying and, or what we're, what we're acknowledging here is that we all need help. This is the shorthand for low anthropology that I've had to develop as people have been asking me about it. It's like, what does it mean? What does low anthropology actually mean? I said, it's a view of human nature that takes it as foundational that we are all in need of help from one another and ultimately from God. That's what it means. And no yeah. no one says, "Oh, that's bad. I don't need help." Everyone <laughs> says, "I do need help." But at the same time, they're all trying to completely help themselves and do everything they can to ever but, to avoid ever having to ask or be in need of someone's help, you know?
2: But I want to say something what Sarah said was really revealing because I and I I'm going to share something and I it sounds a little humble braggy, but I just bear with me. I've had two people come to my to my office recently um, to tell me that I that I meant something to them, or that I, I did something good in their lives, and I mm-hmm. I, I was like, well, wait, slow down. Like it, it, I didn't do much. It wasn't me. Sort of the same way that you did, Sarah. And the reality is, like, we need help, but we need oftentimes God mediates that help through other people, even when we don't feel like we're doing it. Mm, you know, yeah. other people. I say this to our audience, other people need you to show up, even when you don't feel like you, even when you're not at your best and you feel like you have nothing to offer because God in his grace does actually end up mediating his love through you, even when you're not feeling it, even when you have no participation in it or no awareness of it. Um, And so just, I I go back to what, you know, Woody Allen said that 90% of life is just showing up. And I think that's kind of true that you just show up. Not just for your own sake, but for the sake of other people who need you to show up even though you don't know it and you don't experience it, you know?
0: Yeah, that's great. And I I think it also bleeds into the next question, which is – and it's been – people are talking about this all over the internet. Is like what – can you get at church that you can't get at therapy? Because a lot of, th- there is there is such a thing as, you know, some churches, that especially those of us who are in the main line, they, they they don't want to talk about sin, judgment, guilt, you know, atonement, repentance. Uh, Advent. Crucifixion, yeah. Well, everyone seems to want to talk about Advent all of a sudden. No, nope, exactly. not the right everyone way. Like- not
1: the right way. I keep hearing <laughs> these things the right that are way. like, I'm sorry, but I keep hearing these things that are like, oh, it's about when Jesus came and it's about... When we'll fully know justice, I'm like, no, it is about when Jesus comes back again. Say it from the pulpit. I don't care who gets scared. It's the second coming, y'all. That's what it's about. Well, and yes, justice is included in that. But okay, I'm done. No, I cannot do it.
0: I, I, but if, well, I was reading one critic, Brad East, who said a therapeutic. It, Church instead of talking about those things, the second coming, it wants yes. to instead of talk about wellness, health, toxicity, self care, mm-hmm. harm, safety, balance, affirmation, holding space, being well adjusted, etc., cetera, etc. And again, sometimes I, I mean I uh, as as. I think one of the things Mockingbird does well is we try to translate historical language into contemporary language and sometimes that's perceived by usually people sort of on the right as being too loose or and 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 people on the the the, the left just don't like the, don't like whatever it is you're trying to translate sometimes. So it's like it's a hard thing to get right and yet I I mean I I want to affirm the need and desire to translate things into contemporary language, and if the contemporary language that people speaks is a therapeutic language, then by all means, we need to at least engage on that level. But what this guy, Brad East, asks, which I want to hear from the two of you about, is he says, the question is whether the work of therapy is synonymous with the work of the gospel, whether the task of the counselor is one and the same as that of the pastor. His answer is, it is not. And I don't think no. either of you no. who no. are ordained would say it is, but you can see why some people would think it it kind of is discipleship and self realization are somehow conflated, or um, I don't know what. What do
2: you what what? Talk to me. What's the difference between the work of therapy and the work of the gospel? You two. Well, the work of the gospel is that it's it's true no matter whether you ever get self actualized or not you know jesus is coming back you are saved your hope is secure we know the end of the story there's nothing you can do about it and it doesn't matter how you feel about it now if you can in the moments where you actually believe that and internalize that you may actually experience something like peace or or integration or honesty or whatever it might be love hope um but God's work in our lives does not depend on you experiencing any of those things. And, you know, from sometimes Jesus also, like God also, like, you know, upsets our apple cart for our own good, melts us down, shapes us, molds us, you know, and brings suffering into yeah. our life. You know, uh, I think your, your brother posted a picture on Instagram where it was like a man standing on the edge of a cliff and there's a giant hand about to flick him off that said, God. Then there's another hand about to catch him in the chasm and said, also God, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or maybe it was the other way around, but... Um, yeah, the work of God in our life is untamable, and sometimes it looks like what a therapist can do for us, but sometimes it doesn't. Um, but the end of the story is good. So, sorry, Sarah, what do you think?
1: No, I love yeah, that. I love it too. Uh, Keep going. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, I for me, I well, I I'm very turgent state about therapy, so only Jewish therapists. <laughs> Period. Okay. I do not go to a Christian therapist. I do not. I just refuse. Even if you're like Christian, but you're like, oh, religion doesn't come into it. I'm like, no, it probably does. No, I'm not seeing you. Um, That said, you know, I have moments in therapy and I have a really great, she's a faithful Jew. Like my therapist, like is, is religious in her own right where I'm able to say, do I know this? Do I know this person? You probably do. But this feels like a spiritual moment. Right. And for me, or this was like the Holy spirit for me. And, and those two things may meet in that moment in a therapy session. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I'm the one that gets to name that. I think that's really important for me. Um, and I think it's important to other people. I never send my college students to Christian therapists either. Um, it's kind of my thing. Sorry, guys. Um I I think what happens at church and what a pastor does is not even the same thing at all as to what a therapist does. I mean, a a, a, a good pastor, a good priest, you know, speaks the words of of forgiveness and consolation and you know, meets you in your suffering. And, um, you know, a therapist can't, cannot offer words of forgiveness to you. Like they can tell you things like, well, you need to forgive yourself, but it's, it's just not, it's, it's not the same thing at all for me. Um, yeah, it's funny. I was talking to my kids, um, cause we went to a service recently, there was a different tradition and there was a lot of of conversation or there was a lot of, of like preaching and stuff that seemed to suggest sanctification by moral choices. Mm. And we got in the car and I have, you know, a very perceptive 11 year old and he was like, I am just trying to figure out like what. Like we we know we make good choices, like we want to make good choices, but like sometimes we don't. And like I thought that God forgiveness anyway. And then I said, and this is why I will never write a parenting book. Well, we really believe that we get better and sanctification comes. Like we get holier when we suffer. And Then my eight year old was like, I'm ready to get out of the car. Could you just let me off at the wrong family? (laughs) (laughs) But like, you know, I think that even that is like not a thing you're going to hear in a therapist's office. And yet, like, even as an 11 year old, you need to hear like you need, you know, he needed like whatever we want to call me in this situation, priest, mom, pastor, whatever. Like he came to me and said, Hey, but what does this mean for me? Yeah. Where is my relief?
0: Yeah, I no, I think that that's I I can I just can't I, I love hearing you guys talk about this because it's clearly you know you both wear collars too so you, hopefully you have a you have a understanding of your your vocation that is, that is as distinct it's not it's not a put down to another one but it's distinct from that of a therapist and you know I I feel like therapists deal in emotions um, that are super important I mean I I want emotion from many of us is um, can be as freeing as it can be imprisoning. Like, you know, if, if, if emotion is ultimately king, uh, in, or the great authority in our lives, like that's very oppressive because our emotions are so crazy and fickle and so much subject to so many different things. Um, and yet, uh, I, I, I I still want to feel better and I still need a therapist to help me do that. And they're there to be non-judgmental, I think, and to really uh, allow me to be heard and to be seen. And like, those are very, very powerful things. Um, uh, A minister is there to uh, can do those things again, but is there to pronounce God's forgiveness. Like, and that's, uh, and to proclaim the sort of death and resurrection of of Jesus Christ. And and that's not subject as you, RJ, you said, it's not, beholden to one's feelings. And that's of enormous, that's like a mast to hold onto, um, that I find to be, uh, uh not in any way, uh, um, uh, dissonant with, with therapy. And by the way, there's an amazing documentary that came out last, a uh, couple weeks ago that Jonah Hill made. Talk about Jewish th- oh, therapists, Sarah. Yes. Stutz.
1: Really? I have, I want to watch it. It's called Stutz.
0: It's Jonah Hill. Uh, the actor made it about his therapist who he loves. Mm-hmm. And it's it's ninety minutes. You think I can't sit through ninety minutes of just two men in a room talking? It's beautiful, and it's full of and and mm. they, 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 there's some God talk in there too. That's really constructive. Yeah, I loved it, and I think people should 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 watch it. I think it's a very it's it's a look into healing and, and grief, and but also just growing up and um, the way people operate. And I found that to be tremendously helpful. And it, does it—is it, like, ultimately about the forgiveness of sins? Not not really. Therapist offices are usually devoid of moral categories, but we go through the world and there's lots of moral things that happen to us, things that aren't right and things that we do that we regret. Um, and that—I um, want to hear about how that can be dealt with, and um, that—I I think at church I can hear— that proclaimed directly to me. It's the only place you can you can hear that. I mean, that's at least in my mind. It says there's other talk. Like, if if your church can exist, the other reason people go to church and not therapy is God. You know, you want you want uh, if your church can exist without God in the equation at all. I mean, I think that's a real. If it's really just a therapeutic co- construct, I mean, that's why have a church? Why not just have a massive?
1: I mean, they're closing right and left that do that. So. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, they're not going to do so much longer. <laughs> I
1: mean, it's, you yeah. know.
0: God is the re- real thing that we're finding
2: here at, at church, yeah. I think. So RJ, what are you going to say? And you can't, and just, it's very obvious, you can't do church alone. It's not a, it's yeah. not a solid, it's necessarily no. with other people. And I I think sometimes uh, people who are churchgoers and Christians can actually undervalue the power um of a good church, like how amazing it can be to be, to sit with a bunch of people for an hour on a Sunday morning and experience something like hope and peace and joy and freedom, mm. you know, which is in such short supply in our, in our culture. Um, that's, that's the, that's the thing I love most when people say about church is that it's, that it was fun, that they look forward to being there, that it was helpful, that, you know, yeah, it was helpful Yeah, just to be part of a community like that. You know, we, Jamie and I had a good friend in, um, college, who was not a churchgoer. She was raised um, in a different denomination and I think, you know, suffered some wounds um, there. But she, she said to us a few times, gosh, I wish I could have friends like you guys do, just I don't really want to find them at church, <laughs> you know? And we were like... Ooh, g- yeah. yeah, good good luck with that. But, th- yeah. but
0: there's a counter reaction to it where it's like people who think that that if church is at all helpful or if you're ever talking in those terms, and therefore you must be sacrificing some theological profundity, and that's not true. I think that like I, I, not at all. If, if you go to church for years and it's never helpful to you, like then what? Then I'm not sure the gospel is being preached. Like that's not. Yeah. Uh, you can you <clears throat> can you can get this other sort of more doctrinal dogmatic thing where it's like. We are not therapeutic, you know, and God is not here. Doesn't care about no emotions. Doesn't care about your happiness. You know, it's 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 about forgiveness and reconciliation. And you want to say, well, I hope God cares a little bit about my happiness. Like, I don't. If are you really going to tell me if it's not helping me in any respect to deal with my life, like then. then that's that. God is a, that love, but a head, love is a choice, not an emotion. And like you get into the realm <laughs> yeah. of just like, oh, I'm, I've got talk about church and state. You've just got your church life, and then the rest of your life, and you don't never the twain shall meet. And I think that's what I, my father's always reacting very strongly to that push in in sort of Christian circles is to to wall things off. But you know, I want to I want to talk about when we say
1: I mean, God bless people who church shop. Like that's all I can. Yeah. Like when you say that, I'm just like, oh my god, that's awful. Yeah, it's,
0: it's, and I do think it's like just finding a great church. If you find one, hold on to it. It's pretty great. Yeah. Even if, even if they hurt yes. you, because they're gonna hurt you. You're gonna hurt them too. By the way, uh, uh, <laughs> you're gonna, um,
1: the, you're gonna tell them you're a broken person and you don't care.
2: <laughs> <laughs> While throwing, I can't it. believe you said that. What was her reaction to that?
1: Look, I'm in Mississippi, okay? This woman, this saint of the Lord has made a uh, a wooden half, like a moon, because the baby's name has something to do with that, and um, and painted it because she saw it on Etsy. I mean, like, she was all in. That's so crazy. when I said that, she just looked at me and went, oh, like that. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like, we tried. I'm so sorry. Like, I just, you know. But, I mean, that that is something, like, That doesn't, (laughs) that kind of, that stuff coming out of my mouth Mm. in that way, I will say happens actually more often at church than anywhere else. Like it didn't surprise me that I had been at a beautiful Catholic funeral for this precious baby that we lost Mm. and then turned and, and, you know, and within like what, like 36 hours had blurted that out. Like there's something about being close to Jesus that means that I'm just going to say it. Mm. You know, and I don't mean like, oh, I'm so close to Jesus. I just mean literally, physically, if I'm near his building or have been there recently, (laughs) I'm, you know, so, yeah.
0: Well, that's, um, and how could Jesus not be there at the the, the burial of a baby? I mean, that's the... I
1: know, y'all. What a thing. Uh,
0: I've, um... Well, if we think forgiveness is so central, this next article is unbelievable. Uh, This is from Jill Lepore uh, writing in The New Yorker about the case against the Twitter apology. And we're not getting into Elon Musk, but we are talking about the art of, or lack thereof, of the apology, the public apology. She's very interested in answering the paradox of how can a culture that vehemently demands apologies from everyone be so ruthlessly unforgiving at the same time? Um, the two, it seems, go hand in hand. That's what Todd Brewer uh, wrote. But this is what Lapore says. She says, "You can confess without apologizing, and you can apologize without confessing. And this might be because historically, an apology is a justification, a defense, not a confession, like apologetics. In his book, "Forgiveness: an Alternative Account." Matthew Ishihashi Potts, a professor of Christian morals at Harvard Divinity School, offers what he calls a modest theological defense of forgiveness. And his argument follows that of philosopher Martha Nussbaum, who argued that forgiveness isn't salutary for either party if, in order to give it, you insist on an apology. Potts calls this the economy of apology. Forgiveness is not better than vengeance, since to demand an apology and to delight in the offender's groveling is vengeance by another name. His evidence doesn't come from Twitter. It comes mainly from novels, including Gilead and Toni Morrison's uh, Beloved. Forgiveness for Potts is not an exchange, uh, but a promise not to retaliate. Demanding an apology in exchange for forgiveness can never constitute healing or deliver justice. It is instead a pleasure taken by people who delight in witnessing the suffering of those in their power, if only briefly. There is no such thing as a failed apology, then, only an abuse of power, because all forgiveness, Potts writes, begins and ends in failure. Twitter gamifies communication, wrote the philosopher C. Tai Nguyen. It's custom-built to do things like score apologies, to drag users into a rating system that has nothing to do with morality. An unforgiving God rules Twitter, where the modern economy of apology runs something like this. If you express what I believe to be a toxic or ignorant opinion, you must apologize according to my rules for apology. If you do, I may forgive you. If you don't, I will punish you and damn you unto eternity. And Lepore is interested in sort of the, the... the act of public apology, from sort of Ronald Reagan to Bill Clinton to now you just, every, Roseanne Barr, I mean, people are, it's become, she, she says, it's, it's taken on the gravity and solemnity of a secular sacrament. And yet, from what she can tell, despite these apologies, no one ever gets forgiven. Like, it's, it never unlocks forgiveness. Because apologies become expected and then performative the second that happens apology loses its power. So, um, what do you think about this? Apology being um the key to forgiveness or does forgiveness supersede that?
1: I just have we always been this way about apology? I feel like we have. Like I fe- I just feel like it's more public now. Like I feel like that's intrinsic in our DNA that like when we force people to apologize, it feels empty for everyone and there's a certain power play in there but i also like i don't know like i, I i'm i like thinking of historic examples and of course i don't know but i'm like when if women i'm sure there were desperate women who apologized at the salem witch trials mm. i don't know that they got forgiven like i think when there becomes this sort of like uh Animalistic kind of we group think determination. Like I don't know. Like we're very good. I mean, you want to talk about low anthropology? We're very good at garnering that. But when it turn when it comes to like a group think of, of 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 softness and beauty and acceptance of an apology, I'm just not sure. Especially outside of. Christian circles and I know Christian circles are the worst. I know I've gotten the emails y'all. I know, I know, <laughs> but like, I'm not sure there's a, a place for that. I mean, certainly the, the people in Salem were Christian. Um, so I mean, mm. but I, I just, I, that that's a fact. I mean, yes, we can certainly talk about Twitter, but, but it's like, are we even capable of that? And, and is it just now we know it because we are sort of able to condemn everyone more easily?
2: It reminded me of um, something a friend said once. There was a, when Jamie and I first got married, we were living in California. There was another married couple we knew who were slightly older than us, and they were in ministry. And he's, he's Ian and Mindy Noyce. I think he's a pastor in um, Santa Barbara now. But they said uh, that they realized quickly in their marriage there was a big difference between saying, I'm sorry, and asking for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That those are totally different things. And it made me wonder that if someone went on Twitter... And they said something like, I blew it. Would you please forgive me? Would you please forgive me? That might change the conversation a little bit, you know? It was so, sort of a level of vulnerability. And then people might forgive them. They might not. But, but I'm just saying that there is a difference to that. There's a difference between an apology there is a
1: difference. And, just, and
2: asking for forgiveness.
1: There is a difference. You know,
2: and, and, yes. and there's a vulnerability sure. that comes with asking for forgiveness. But that I think asking for forgiveness, I think, demonstrates something like a genuine remorse and a, yeah. an, an acknowledgement that there's nothing you really can do um, to make up for what you've done and you're asking another person to kind of let it go,
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, which, is I, your own,
2: which is the only hope.
1: I totally agree with that. And I think in marriage and in, in relationships in person, but I, I do, to go back to sort of the, the piece of, of cultural isolation, I think, you know, people are God awful on social media platforms to each other and especially to people who apologize. It's like you're showing weakness. You know, it's like all we want is an apology. And then when you apologize, you're showing weakness and we can just like eat you alive. I don't know. Yeah. It makes me think though I had a boss one time say to me, cause I screwed something up and he said, um, uh, "I said I was sorry." And he said, uh, "Saying sorry means you'll never do it again." Mm. And I remember thinking, "What are you talking nope. about?" <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Um, and that you know that was in a, a Christian context. So I, you know, it is. <sighs>
0: well, in a way, you're getting into a like a repentance forgiveness tango that that I think is. We, you know, Jesus calls people to repentance. It seems it's an important category. I, 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 which, to my mind, repentance and humility go hand in hand. These are good, totally. good things. And yet, if forgiveness is only poured out in proportion to the remorse we feel when we, in our public acts of repentance, then uh, no one is actually forgiven. Because you know, it's just it's so true in relationships. And you have to use the relationship analogy, but like. I can I apologize for, for things or for ask for forgiveness for things and they're usually the things that I'm convicted about and yet there's oftentimes there's all sorts of other things that I'm not even aware of that have right. rubbed this other person the wrong way or where ways in which I've just completely unintentionally um, or just without unconsciously let me not say unintentionally unconsciously um, stepped on another person. You know, and and then there's to say nothing of the sort of just basic personality traits that I don't seem to have much agency over regard for at all. And so one thing I love about this article is that um, there's no wonder that society is not getting any better that's what lapore says later she says it's it's not getting any better at, with this uh scorekeeping of you say the right apology and you get this the exact amount of forgiveness you need like when we're talking about forgiveness in christian terms you're talking about something that can cover both the things you feel badly about the things you apologize for and the things you may not even be aware of including some of the things about who you are right that are in need of uh, sincere correction and redemption. I, I right. think that's a that's a very very hopeful word though to people who are. I mean, because I I think a good relationship, by the way, is the is one in which both people feel like they're always having to apologize. You know, it's like like well, I'm always the one that op- apologizes, and the other person thinks, well, I'm always the one who apologizes. I think it's like that that strikes me as a somewhat. Uh, if only one person feels that way then there might really be an imbalance and and there might be this sort of codependency that's getting out of the way but isn't that what it means to be in a relationship with another person that you love is to sort of feel like you're always have something to apologize for i don't know does that does that sounds sh- like shaming i, I don't I, I don't quite know that what the-
1: if that sounds like shaming i mean it's I think, reality yeah i mean we have a joke right now because there's so many freaking boxes at our house uh for christmas so it's like i'm constantly i just like a box comes in i slice it open i throw it on the back porch and magically it disappears and like our joke right now is josh is just like man that box fairy is killing it right <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> just shows up it's nuts mm. Um, you know, I mean, I think there's, um, I don't know if it's apology, but I always think there's like, I don't know, humor and, and screwing up and all those things.
0: Well, um, I just want to say that, uh, I, I am sorry to you guys <laughs> for, just kidding. Um, I said that already. Uh,
1: <laughs> you did.
0: Do you guys have anything you want to sort of add? How, how have you been talking about Advent to your people?
1: I preached this past Sunday um, for Advent One at, at Josh's church at Holy Spirit. And, you know, what always strikes me about this passage is how much it was used in my childhood, and the culture I grew up in, not in my household, but um, to really scare teenagers, you know, because it was always like, are you ready? Like, have you had sex before marriage? Are you drinking wine coolers? You know, are you ready <laughs> are you awake right
2: are you awake bartles and james are you
1: chasing sober and how terrifying that was and how like I, you know i grew up with people who would get up in the morning and check to make sure their parents were still there because they were sure that their parents had been raptured and they hadn't been mm. and how frightening that is and and I, it just struck me how lame that is, that is like the lamest interpretation of this passage, right? That, that somehow these would be the qualifiers and, you know, and that really the qualifier is, is, is just Jesus, right? Like we've been qualified, right? Because Jesus, um, and that it is really a beautiful thing. And we should be talking about it in our pulpits that like Advent really is this relief actually that Jesus will come back and that we actually will rest in Jesus mm. um, and that we miss out when we try to you know I mean just thank God for Fleming Rutledge's work in the church because she is I feel like has just led this charge on Advent um, with her book that came out a few years ago it's like no actually this is what Advent is like look at the readings mm. you know so mm. I don't know I, um, Rutger what did you
2: preach for Advent I didn't preach this past Sunday, oh, but, like um, didn't but always. No, I didn't. I didn't. He never
1: preaches, guys. <laughs> is
2: that... Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes. I'm what are you going to say this week then? Um, I'm going to talk about uh, John the Baptist and our attraction to stringent, charismatic leaders, but that's not mm-hmm. who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but no, my my the the part of the Advent service that I always love every week when we're doing communion is a little. Proper preface that comes at like the beginning of the service, where it talks about how, when Jesus comes again, we may without shame yeah. or fear yeah. rejoice to behold His appearing. And I think that's the message I want to get across: like Jesus is coming back,
1: yeah,
2: uh, hopefully sooner rather than later.
1: Yeah,
2: and you have nothing to be worried about.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: No shame, no fear. You can rejoice to behold His appearing. Um, And that if it's true, and he's coming back, and we're going to live forever, um, and this life is just a drop in the bucket of our existence, then, you know, as Sarah said, you know, like, get in the pool. You're going to die someday. Get in the pool. We can hold it all with a little bit looser hand.
1: Mm, totally. You know,
2: and, and all and and all the stress I was talking about of being a 40 something of, you know, keeping your family happy and your kids uh, educated and your clients um satisfied and your employees happy and all that sort of stuff. Th- that can all just it can fade a little bit into the background because it's not forever. It's very temporal and you, and you're you're very small and it's all you're small but you're loved and it's going to be okay. So have the wine I, cooler. I, <laughs> Just have that's right. Have the, get get in the pool. Have the wine cooler, Carlos and James. Do they that's still even right. make those. Um,
1: yeah, oh my gosh. Of no. course, it
2: they hasn't make all wine coolers. been taken over so Those by are such great commercials.
0: Didn't we have a whole episode about White Claw one time?
1: You can still get like a sea breeze wine cooler. Trust me. Okay.
2: Well, oh, very nice. Sarah's sipping one on that right now. <laughs> you guys have a. She should be. What do you say? Do you
0: say Happy Advent because it's such such apocalyptic? Uh, you know, blessed have Advent. A blessed Advent. The two of you. Um, I don't know Yeah, and, and Sarah you, you reference uh, Fleming but uh, she would be aghast that you're putting up uh, Christmas for, uh, decorations wouldn't she
1: well thankfully she's not a <laughs>
0: <laughs> we love you Fleming um, all right well thank you both of you and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks and thank you listeners all right. uh, talk, talk to you soon in a couple of
2: weeks bye. thank you
1: bye
0: Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.emberd.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info@embird.com. Audio production for the Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time.